This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed News Magazine. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, award season preview, predictions for the Oscars and for the Junos, how to navigate the airport during one of the busiest times of the year, and last-minute March break ideas. But first, we are marking the three-year anniversary of the WHO's pandemic declaration, March 11, 2020, a day many will never forget. And here's the thing. Few of us had any idea what was in store. Death from COVID, life-altering illness, lockdowns, mandatory vaccinations, schools closed, long lineups for food, medication, and other essentials, empty store shelves, restricted and often no travel. Isolation, job loss, economic instability, sickness, sadness, loneliness, fear of the unknown. But we got through it. And now as we look at the pandemic in the rearview mirror, we ask ourselves, what have we learned and are we prepared for the next global health emergency? Joining us now is Professor Ray Dianandon, epidemiologist, COVID-19 science communicator and associate professor at Ottawa University. Also, the father of a child who is about to turn three. And Ray, welcome to the show. But it means that you and your wife had a pandemic baby. What does that mean to you? It means that I can track the progress of the pandemic by looking at his progress through life. So the access that he has to elements of society have tracked with the extent to which restrictions have come and gone. It's been fascinating to watch how his life has mirrored the pandemic progression so closely. And, you know, we all look back at the past three years and really, truly, we were we felt a bit blindsided. And I'm not speaking for everyone. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. But it took us all by storm and by surprise. What do you remember most about the past couple of years? What stands out in your mind as an epidemiologist about COVID-19 and how it was handled? Wow, that's a big question. A lot stands out for me, and not much of it scientific, to be honest. What stands out mostly is the the path that society took in understanding and misunderstanding science. I think a lot of people got a crash course in what science actually is by watching it unfold in real time. Science is not a set of facts. Science is a process of understanding that changes with time. And I'm fond of telling my students, for example, that everything that I tell you now should be uh, given the caveat, all of this is true until further notice mm. because knowledge evolves. You know, it's interesting, the uh, top doctor in Ontario earlier this week uh, made a statement, part of his annual report, saying we need to do a better job of being prepared for the next pandemic. You got a jump on that in January of this year, January 12th to be exact, you had an article in the Ottawa Citizen, let's apply COVID lessons to the next pandemic. Shall we review some of that? It begins with your first suggestion. We must inoculate the public against pseudoscience. What do you mean by that? This is a huge one. So one of the things we did not anticipate as science communicators, let's back up for a second. My job as a science communicator, as I define it, is to just inform the public about the nature of an emergency, maybe tell them what they need to do and what the um, the public health actors are doing about it, and possibly explain some of the underlying science. Mm. One thing we did not anticipate is the need to combat misinformation and disinformation. And that came at us very hard. So misinformation and pseudoscience is communicated via YouTube video. You can put a YouTube video up and it's viewed by millions of people in a matter of hours. Proper science undergoes peer review. It's slow 
And by the time a paper comes out, the average number of people that reads that paper is like two or three. So you're at a disadvantage already as being a purveyor of proper science against pseudoscience. The best way to make sure that actual science is understood and accepted by the masses is to inoculate the public, pun intended, against bad ideas by really investing in good fundamental science education. That takes years, if not decades, but we have to start now to get it done properly. Vaccine development must be kept live and nimble. I've never heard that description, nimble. What do you mean by that? I mean that we have to be ready to create new vaccines quickly. We have to be ready to adopt new technologies quickly. We have to be ready to distribute at a rapid pace. Think back in 2020 when we first got the mRNA vaccines, how much thirst there was to get access to those vaccines, how people were lying about their eligibility status, how there was even movement amongst organized crime to get access to the vaccines. It was so slow to get them. And because we as Canadians did not manufacture them, we weren't prioritized globally to receive the vaccines. We had to wait additional weeks and months before our most vulnerable could be uh, immunized. So what I think we need is to have domestic vaccine production capacity. We're working on that to, to a much larger extent than we have now. We used to have this decades ago. We need it again. And we need to have cutting-edge vaccine development technology because I think we're looking at a new era of immunotherapy as new technologies are revolutionizing vaccine science. And we have to be part of that process. The fifth of your six measures that will help in future public health emergencies in your Ottawa Citizen article, we must strengthen our health care system. I think that there would be 100% support for that by all Canadians. Yeah, this is a big one. So people aren't aware. We're very proud of our health care system. It's um, the envy of much of our continent. However, uh, Canadians don't realize that we rank at the bottom half of OECD nations in terms of the number of beds per capita, the number of doctors per capita, the number of nurses per capita. That's why a threat like COVID-19 was so dire. We could not afford to let too many people become infected too quickly because that would have overwhelmed our healthcare system. That's why we had lockdowns. Right? For no other reason, frankly. So in the future, if you want to avoid the kind of economic penalties and experiences that we endured, we have to have the capacity to absorb more people into our healthcare system. Nations like Germany were far more resilient because they have a lot more capacity. And um, capacity is not a bad thing. Even in times of non-emergency, it means people like you and me can get care more quickly. I want to talk about public health policies, and there's a quote from your article, pandemics have a way of exacerbating existing cracks in society. I think the two are linked, public health policies and and cracks in society. I don't think there's any doubt about this, and I think everyone understands what I mean by that. Just look at the way in which we have much more divisiveness now than we did three years ago, ideologically, economically, uh, societally, and so forth. Who suffered most during the pandemic? Well, the, those of lower income, those at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, were the most likely to lose their jobs, the ones least able to protect themselves from infection. They had to ride the bus to work. They couldn't work from home. They couldn't take time off from work because they didn't have any sick days, and we needed to keep them working because they, uh, they staffed our things like uh, grocery stores that were essential. So on the one hand, they were um, the most put upon, and they were the most likely to become infected. So that cannot be allowed to happen again. Public health policy here actually made that worse, unintentionally so. 
So what we have to do is make sure the future policies are sensitive to these um, to these unintended consequences that have to do with the social determinants of health. Any new policy platform must have as hard an understanding of the social determinants of health. I want to bookend what you've said by going way back. Ray, in your estimation, were there any early warning signs that we were about to face a pandemic? Well, yes. <laughs> in December 2019, there was a couple of um, private enterprise uh, pandemic monitoring companies that told their investors, look, we're looking at a pandemic. Absolutely, we are. Mm-hmm. Um, there are signs coming out of China that something unusual is happening and we need to be alert to this. That doesn't mean that we had the resources to do anything really about it. Um, I think we, we responded as best we could with the knowledge that we had. But I think there is no excuse for when this happens again for us not to be prepared to, uh, to blunt the effect. At the very least, at the very least, we should know it's happening earlier and be able to warn the population of what's coming. So having said everything that you have so far, are we in the right mindset? And I talk about we as society, but also governments. Are we putting together what is necessary to be prepared for the next global health emergency? Or are we just saying, look, we got through this. Life goes on. La, 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 la. I think it's more the latter, frankly. Uh, There's some movement around the former, but not a lot. If you look back at SARS in 2003, I think that was, um, one of the lessons there was we didn't have a cohesive national public health response system, and so we created the Public Health Agency of Canada. Since then, we didn't really move a lot on that front. We're still communicating from public health units to the federal government by a fax machine, 1990s technology. So we need to update a lot of the infrastructure, and I don't see a lot of movement on that front, frankly. What we have to do as well is combat the, uh, the ideological divisions that exist that are, uh, we still have this narrative that the pandemic was no big deal. It was a huge deal. You know? So we have to fix that problem socially. Almost all of our problems are human-made right now. They aren't the disease driving our, our, our suffering. It's, we're causing our own suffering, frankly. And this requires strong political leadership and public will. Are you optimistic about the future? And when I talk about your future, I think about your son, and that also begs the question, how will you describe to him his first three years of life on this planet when he's old enough to digest what you're saying? That's a loaded question. It depends on where we go next. If, in fact, we're looking down the barrel of an infectious disease apocalypse, I don't think we are. <laughs> then we may look back at these times as the glory days. But if, if we do everything right and we return to some semblance of 2019, heydays, then we can look back and say, these were the times where we learned to work together as a planet to, um, to fight back the coming age of infectious disease. There are a lot, there's a lot of things that we have to work on globally, including understanding the role of animal husbandry in these pandemics. So uh, reimagining climate change, reimagining agriculture, reimagining globalization, all these things play a role in deriving the next pandemic. And what are you going to say to your son when he wants to hear about what happened during the pandemic? <laughs> I'll tell him, we used to have this thing called civilization. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, uh, I, I'll, I'll tell him, I'll, I'll tell him uh, uh, because I'm an optimist, and I think we're going to get through this well, and we're going to strengthen our society uh, accordingly. I will tell him, we learned valuable lessons in your first three years of life. And your father was really well motivated to, to contribute to that conversation because he wants you to have a great life and other kids like you and to grow up in a world 
that resembles the um, the great public health adventures that we had in the 20th century where we beat back malaria and other kinds of scourges. We can do that again, and we will. Hmm. You're a great epidemiologist. You're also a great father. Professor Ray Dianandon, thank you so much for joining us on The Feed. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. The economic impact of the pandemic is still being felt, particularly on younger Canadians. Tina Cortez now with Preparing for the Financial Future. According to an RBC poll about young Canadians and their finances, 52% aged 18 to 34 were not prepared for the impact of inflation. To explain and share the additional findings, Stuart Gray, Director, Financial Planning Centre of Expertise at RBC. Welcome to the feed, Stuart. Thanks, Tina. Glad to be with you today. All right. So it sounds like young people are not only unprepared, they're probably perhaps not very confident about their future, are they? Yeah, that's certainly what we heard in in our recent poll, uh, and especially in that age group that you mentioned, uh, with over half of of these individuals experiencing situations that are impacting their cash flow uh, and their day-to-day living. And and 47% of those uh, responded they just never experienced this high level of inflation before. And if we think of that age bracket, um, they really probably only experienced 2 to 3% inflation in their life. Um, they were born after the 80s, when with the last time we, we really re- saw inflation this high. Well, it doesn't sound like young Canadians have a great deal to be optimistic about. Absolutely, Tina. I think one of the things we saw in the poll was that 43% didn't anticipate how the current environment would have what effect it would have on their ability to pay for basic needs. Uh, And and we also saw that 34% were already living paycheck to paycheck. So increased costs were certainly putting an extra burden on them. And in terms of percentages, you know, how many young Canadians, according to your poll, are worried about not being able to make ends meet due to inflation? I think if we go back to that same uh, statistic, the number comes through, it's about 40, 43% of young Canadians in that 18 to 34 age bracket are worried about making ends meet. And we often compare, you know, generation to generation. So how does the RBC poll findings compare to the financial situation of young Canadians with their parents' generation, for example, when they were the same age? Do we know? Yeah, so if we look at that same um, statistic where 43% of 18 to 34 didn't expect the impact, when we look out to... um, the age group of 55 plus, which would be ideally their parents likely, who also uh, lived through inflation in the 80s. Uh, That percentage drops to 34. So we're certainly seeing a higher impact in young Canadians than, than our 55 plus Canadians. For anyone listening right now, a young Canadian who is listening, what is the biggest takeaway? What do you want to say to them? What's your message? Yeah, I think trying to figure things out on your own without building your investment knowledge or or basic financial literacy, um, lean on a financial advisor. Lean on digital tools that are available to you. Uh, At RBC, we have My Advisor, which is an online goal and investment tool, but also helps you look at your cash flow. Um, If you're unsure, work with an advisor. Reach out to someone who can also uh, help you think about how some of these other impacts may come in. Uh, and, uh, you know, my last piece of advice is don't go for the quick wins. Mm. Um, you know, you, you often hear, I, I, my buddy invested in this, um, and, and you should do that too. And it may not be the appropriate investment or the appropriate choice for you. Um, so watch out for those quick wins. 
planning for the, the mid to long term is the better option always. Good advice. Stuart Gray, Director, Financial Planning Center of Expertise at RBC. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks, Tina. Have a great day. A group supporting local governments in the province is saying at least seven rural municipalities have started to offer staff a four-day workweek option. The details from Glenn Perkins. Scott Volke is the executive director of the Ontario Municipal Administrators Association. He says smaller municipalities are considering the possibility of a four-day work week as they continue to find ways to attract staff and adapt to new post-pandemic work patterns. Scott, how many municipalities are we talking about? There are seven municipalities in Ontario that have a four-day week and um, some others are considering it. It's early to say it's a trend. You know, seven out of 444 is not significant at this point, but there are some municipalities that are considering it. How will municipalities make a four-day work week work? That's a great question. So first and foremost, you're talking about municipal governments. So they are public servants. So the most important thing is to maintain or actually increase service levels. So in all of the municipalities that have gone to a four-day work week, they've actually increased the number of hours, for example, that their uh, town office is open. So it's not to say that there's, you know, one day a week where there won't be anyone there. That is not the case. There's always the same or better level of service to the public. So the key is for municipal managers to have a workforce that's adopted a four-day work week to plan and schedule effectively so they've got coverage of all the key services. Scott, with this involving local government, business hours are usually Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. Would that have to change? That's a municipal decision, so that will vary from location to location. As far as I know, in the seven municipalities that have adopted it, they are Monday to Friday operations. But as I say, that's a local decision. Every municipality makes that decision on their own. To help municipalities consider options available to them, the OMAA is organizing a workshop in May. What will that agenda look like? So we have a regularly scheduled spring workshop that has a number of topics. This is going to be one such topic. Uh, and we're going to hear from the CAOs of Springwater Township and Zora Township because they have implemented the four-day work week for a significant amount of time that they can share some lessons learned and best practices with other CAOs that may be considering doing the same thing in their municipality. Can you expand on those lessons? Well, first important lesson is not one size fits all. So it's important that people understand that the municipalities that have a four-day work week, it is an option for their staff. It is not mandatory. So some staff may actually prefer a five-day work week. They may have childcare arrangements, for example, where a five-day work week makes more sense for them, and they're perfectly able to carry on doing that. That flexibility and choice is one of the key learnings that some of the CEOs that have moved forward have said is key to making it work. Scott, coming out of the pandemic, many people's vision changed and they started looking at their work-life balance. Is this something that comes into consideration with a four-day work week? It's a great point, and I think that's why you are seeing uh, particularly small and rural places take a good look at this because it has been difficult for them to attract and retain talent. So they're, uh, not surprisingly, some of the first municipalities to take a look at this for doing just what you said, 
in, you know, meaningfully moving towards a greater work-life balance. Scott Volkey, Executive Director of the Ontario Municipal Administrators Association, thank you for joining us on the feed today. My pleasure. Thank you, Glenn. March from beginning to end is one busy month. International Women's Day, the Oscars, March Madness, St. Patrick's Day, Earth Hour, and Spring. Woohoo! This year, 2023, we are finally able to enjoy this month full throttle, in person, shoulder to shoulder, face to face. Here with how Vaughn is planning to celebrate all things March is Mayor Stephen Del Duca. Welcome to the feed, Your Honor. Always a pleasure to have our monthly chat. Well, it's great to be back on with you. Thanks so much, Anne. Let's look back at International Women's Day this past Wednesday, March the 8th. How did Vaughn mark that very special day? Oh, what a great question for us to start with. It's such an important day for us to recognize, not just in our city here in Vaughn, but across across the country, around the world, the importance of building inclusive and diverse and uh, equal uh, equal societies, equal communities. And so at the city of Vaughan on uh, this past Wednesday in the morning, we had a great celebration, a great formal program. We had a number of really important trailblazing um, organizations led by women here in the city of Vaughan. They had booths set up, people were networking. I gave a short speech. Four members of our city council who happened to be women came up and shared some of their thoughts. We had two formal presentations from uh, incredible performers, really to showcase the incredible talent that we have, but more importantly than that, to recognize the struggle that women continue to go through and how much we've accomplished, yes, but how much more we still have to do in order to make sure that true equality for women is something that we don't even have to think about anymore because it's been achieved. And must be top of mind for you and your own family. You have uh, two daughters and, you know, you want the best for them, but you also want them to blaze trails as well. I do for sure. And that's actually what I said in my remarks this past Wednesday. I talked about my daughters. They are the most important people in my life. They are the reason that I I'm trying as hard as I can to be a good dad. It is my number one job. I say that every time I get the chance to talk about it. I know my wife is a phenomenal um, role model for our daughters, but I want them to grow up in a world where they're not held back by anything. There are no barriers, in particular, any barriers put in their way because they happen to be women. And I, you know, we're obviously much closer to that goal today versus what my grandmothers and my own mother had to go through. But the work is not done. The journey is not complete. So we do have a collective responsibility to make sure that we end up in that spot sooner rather than later. And that's one of the reasons that celebrating International Women's Day is so important to me personally. And, you know, you want your daughters and all women and all people to grow up and grow old in a healthy planet. And that's where we look toward Earth Hour, March the 25th. How will Vaughn be marking Earth Hour? Well, as we have for many years, again, another really important day for us to acknowledge the great work about how we we need to continue to protect and enhance our natural environment. Right here at City Hall, 2141 Major Mackenzie Drive in the city of Vaughan from 6.30 to 10 o'clock that evening on March the 25th. We're inviting the community to come here to be with us to celebrate Earth Hour, to bring the family out. It's going to be, I think, a really, um, a really wonderful and thoughtful a family-focused, community-focused day of celebration for our natural environment and for supporting this beautiful planet that we call home. You know, I've been circling all kinds of things 
on my calendar in March. I do it the old-fashioned way, I'm afraid. <laughs> and Mar- <laughs> March 28th has a big circle around it. It's the Vaughn Chamber of Commerce Annual Mayor's Luncheon at the Yum Terrace Banquet Center. They serve <laughs> such great food. What is what is the purpose of this luncheon? So this is an event that's been taking place here in Vaughn for a number of years. My predecessor, my good friend, Maurizio Bevilacqua, did it every year with our local chamber. The chamber has uh, has indicated they want to keep it going. I'm thrilled about that. It's an opportunity, and this is my first one, obviously. It's an opportunity for me to share um, a bit of an update um, for where we are as a city. But for me, most importantly, it's to talk about the plans that I have as mayor, working with council and our city staff and the private sector, the plans that we have to make sure that our city here in Vaughan continues to be prosperous, to be fair, and to grow in the right way. And while I'm not going to give you too much at this point in time, I will give you a little bit of a teaser. The primary focus of my remarks this year will be about the transportation network we have in the city and how we need to do better with specifics attached to that uh, to get both people and goods moving more freely and better right around the city of Vaughan. And is that in your wheelhouse? Is that in your your part of your experience (laughs) as a politician, but also as a person, the idea of better transportation? It is for sure. I mean, first of all, I've lived in the community for about 35 or 36 years, so I've witnessed the growth firsthand. And the challenge that comes with explosive growth when you don't keep going or keep up with that growth in terms of your transportation network, you end up in a situation where our roads are clogged, where people don't enjoy the same quality of life that they could otherwise if we had a comprehensive network that was working uh, for them. But at the same time, I had the honor of serving previously for about three and a half years as Ontario's Minister of Transportation. So bringing that experience plus my local knowledge and my determination to work with Council to make things better. How important is the Vaughan Chamber of Commerce to the success of all things in Vaughan? Uh, The Vaughan Chamber is a phenomenal organization. We are very blessed right around Ontario to have a really great chamber community, chamber network. But here in Vaughan, they are truly second to none. We've had a chance to work really closely with the Vaughan Chamber staff and the, the board through many, many years, and the current group, uh, is they're just doing phenomenal work supporting local entrepreneurs, making sure, again, that we continue to be prosperous, that we're growing in the right way, and helping to provide that support or be that voice for business here in our community. Mayor Del Duca, do you mind if I am the town crier, or in our case, the city crier for Vaughn? Here we go. Calling all Vaughn volunteers, time for you to be recognized. I just need a <laughs> bell in my hand to, to ring along with it. So so now that I've embarrassed myself completely... I can picture it. I can picture <laughs> that perfectly. That was great. <laughs> Thanks. I, I, I think that we need to explain exactly what this is. It's the Volunteer Recognition Awards. How cool is that? I, listen, I think it's really cool. We are, I mean, I can't, I can't say enough about the women and men who step forward here in Vaughan every day to support incredible organizations that we have by volunteering their time, bringing their expertise, their dedication, their passion for a wide variety of really good causes, whether it's the volunteers who work in our library system, at our local Cordelucci Vaughan Hospital, uh, all of the good charitable um, organizations that we have operating right in the, in the city, all of our places of worship. There are thousands and thousands of women and men who volunteer every day and make this city a better place. And so this is our opportunity as a city to formally recognize individuals who are exceptional as volunteers with these recognition awards that are going to be happening 
on uh, April the 19th at 7.30 here at City Hall. It's going to be a beautiful ceremony I'm looking forward to. And nominations are open or accepted until Wednesday, March 22nd. So I'm counting on my fingers as you're talking, and I'm listening to everything you're saying, but I'm also thinking about how many months you've been in position. How comfortable is the mayor's chair for you now, several months into your tenure as mayor of Vaughan? And do you like the job so far? No, I love the job, having the chance to serve my local community, the community that I do love, the community where, again, my wife and I are raising our young daughters is a dream come true for me. Um, I'm getting more comfortable, and I'm going to tell you, I'm still learning, but I think that's an important part of life. I think if we're not, if we stop learning, I think in many respects, we stop living. So I'm eyes wide open. I have an open mind and an open heart to this job, to this mission that we are on as a city to keep building Vaughan and to keep make sure that it gro- to, to make sure that it grows in the right way, as I always say. Um, but I'm loving the job, still learning, love working with council. We have an exceptional city staff here. And most importantly, the 330, 340,000 people who call this community home, they make it easy for me because of what they do in their day-to-day lives. And who do you go to for advice? Well, I, I do have the chance from time to time to talk to my predecessor. I mentioned him earlier. Maurizio is someone who served in this capacity for 12 years. Uh, he helped me with the transition after the election campaign before I was officially sworn in. I do call upon him. I, I've, I was raised by uh, parents and grandparents who taught me that experience is the best teacher, and he did a great job for 12 years. Uh, so I do call upon him. And then I have a group of friends who are sort of outside or one step removed from politics who I think every once in a while are very good at giving me a sense of what's happening, if I can say this, in the real world. You know, sometimes, of us, sometimes those of us in politics get stuck inside a bit of a bubble. I think it's really helpful to have a reality check for what families are facing in their day-to-day lives and not get too stuck on talking points and what we're hearing uh, internally in an insular way, but to actually get a real feel for what's happening. So between Maurizio as someone who did the job for a really long time and did it so well, and personal friends who don't mind being very honest with me when I'm dropping the ball, which is also really important. Uh, I'm, I'm quite well supported in that regard. And what about the collective voice of citizens of Vaughan? Do you hear them? Do they speak to you? And is your door, not literally, but is your door open to them? You know, it's funny because after serving for six years previously as a member of provincial parliament, there obviously, when I'd be in the community, there'd be interactions. People would come up and talk to me, but it was kind of hit and miss, or it was a fairly, a relative, relatively speaking, small proportion of people who would come up and talk to me. Since becoming mayor, what I find when I'm at the grocery store or at a community center with my daughters, even dropping my kids off at school, the, the, the willingness, which I love, by the way, of, of people in the community coming up to me, wanting to chat with me. Sometimes it's a concern. Sometimes it's a complaint. Sometimes it's a compliment. It's a mix of all those things. But there's such, there's such a direct connection, I think, to our local politicians. It's a very granular kind of job in that regard. I think it's extraordinary, and I love it. The only thing I wish is that that kind of local connection would translate into higher voter turnout at the municipal level, uh, which is something we're still working on. But the fact that people come up to me on a regular basis, we have that dialogue, that conversation, I think helps make me be a better mayor. Well, the proof will be in the pudding about the voter turnout in three and a half years, so we'll see. Until then, marvelous talking with you about March, and I look forward to touching base with you in April. It'll be a very busy spring for you and for council and for the citizens of Vaughan. And it'll be wonderful to catch up and find out exactly what's happening and how you can make a difference and how... 
the citizens can make a difference in Vaughn as well. Thank you, Mayor Del Duca. Absolutely. Coming up next, ready for March break takeoff? Not so fast. That story is next. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. If you're headed to the airport for March break, pack your patience first. Jim Lang with the Aviation Advice. March break is upon us and so is travel stress for millions of Canadians and families trying to get away. And especially after the last six months, seeing all the chaos at airports across Canada. It's not an easy time to get away to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by John Graddock, a faculty lecturer in the academic program coordinator, supply chain logistics, and so much more at the esteemed McGill University. He joins us today. John, how are you? Not bad, sir. Not bad. Nice to be here with you. It's a pleasure. I mean, after what we saw over the Christmas break, John, people are understandably very skittish about traveling over March break. What can people do to actually get from point A to point B in the least amount of trouble possible? Um, probably follow a couple of pieces of advice that I usually give is arrive early at the airport, like around two or two or three hours before, depending on the trip. If you're going domestically two hours before, internationally three hours before. Uh, if you're, um, you know, checking bags, uh, get a tracker, uh, put in the bag. And But if you can travel without a bag, please do so. Thirdly, probably get some travel insurance. Uh, we call the all-risk travel insurance. I'm not a promoter of insurance policies, but, you know, these days, you know, you rather have some insurance than no insurance on travel, uh, and that covers off that the flights are canceled, delayed, you know, and all kinds of crazy things that happen on airplanes. Uh, and four would probably be, you know, look at, you know, having a plan B or a plan C in terms of, you know, something that you have in your back pocket just in case the airline, the airline decides to, uh, to pull a fast one. I want to get more to the carry-on in a second, but you talk about plan B and C, and my wife and I have a lot of friends, and I've heard from people that are saying, you know what, we're so worried about air travel, we're going to drive. Are you hearing more and more people are going to drive to their destination just to avoid any problems at the airport? Yeah, and I think, you know, I've had a friend of mine who, uh, in fact, drove to Florida, and yeah, it took him 32 hours to drive to Florida, but it wasn't that bad of a drive. But, you know, you're, you're, you're again, weather-dependent on the highways and stuff, so... It's, you know, once, once you get to the Caribbean and Mexico, not a good idea. But in Florida, Mexico, Florida and U.S. is probably a, a sound alternative, a day, you know, a day or two worth of driving either, both ways. So it does take time, but it does save you the hassle of worrying about airport, had, you know, airport problems. I've had friends that tell me they've taken a carry-on to fly to London, England. Carry-on now is the new must for travel. It, are there secrets or ways to pack your carry-on because you're just so worried about checking a bag now? Yeah, well, you know, I, I've, I've had a number of people talk to me about cubes, and you get cubes. Oh. And cubes, cubes are these little, you know, subsets of baggage that are basically containers, plastic, that, you know, they're... they're, they're uh, Something like you know a Ziploc bag, but a but a Ziploc bag for clothes with zippers and everything else. And you basically roll your clothes into those uh, into those containers, and it, you'd be amazed, you know, the number of pieces of items of clothing that you can put into a a, a carry-on, either a, a small duffel bag or a backpack. 
Speaking with John Graddick from McGill University about getting ready for March break travel, it's it's not just you know, adults that are traveling. You're traveling with kids, and when you're traveling with kids as a family, that adds a whole new level of frustration and potential problems for traveling. Are there are there any ideas for those parents out there with younger kids taking that March break trip that maybe they can make it less stressful? Take a lot of take a lot of take a lot of toys with you. <laughs> uh, you you got to you got to keep them distracted because you know. You know, I, I've had give, give an example. My sister left this morning. She was supposed to leave from Montreal to go to Toronto and then flight to flight on Nassau. And of course, you know, last night at ten o'clock, her five o'clock flight this morning got delayed by an hour uh, and no reason given. And she missed her connection in Toronto to go to Nassau. So now the airline says you're going to Chicago, and then from Chicago you're going to Nassau. But the connection in Chicago is seven hours. And oh. so what are you going to do in Chicago O'Hare for seven hours? And you got two kids with you, so you've got to keep the kids entertained. So, yeah, in their, ba- in their backpacks, uh, in their carry-on, bring a lot of distraction along with them. But, John, I think about your, your scope of expertise at McGill University. Big picture, down the road, how do the airlines, how do Air Canada, how do the big companies in this country regain the trust of Canadians after what we've gone through the last six to eight months? It's really service. It's really about customer service. I think that, you know, you, you, the question that you, you, when you sit there on the phone and on, on the call in the call center uh, and you have to wait for three or four or five hours to talk to a live person, you know, that is not customer service. I think the airlines have, you know, focused on, on, in on profitability to make sure their shareholders are happy given two years of, of the doldrums or of, of huge losses. So they're trying to maximize the profitability, trying to maximize the number of seats they're offering and filling those seats. Uh, and customer service, in my opinion, has taken a back seat to all of this stuff. Uh, they've got to really come back to uh, to really making sure that they're taking care of the passenger, whether it's you know in person or whether it's on the phone. That has lo- has been lost completely. And I need to, they need to spend some time reinvesting in that customer service side. And John, in closing, you know, I don't want to sound all doom and gloom to the listeners because I, I have heard from friends that say, hey, I went to the airport, I flew to here or there, I got in and out at a reasonable time, and the whole process wasn't that bad. Yeah, yeah, you fly on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Piece of cake flying on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, as long as Mother Nature cooperates with you. But, you know, you, you fly you fly out starting Friday morning, and you, you know, fly through the weekend, and even Mondays can be a little tense. Uh, but, you know, I'd say, you know, stay away from Mondays, stay away from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, even Monday, so fly Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You know, the odds are you're going to have a less stress trip through the airport. And John, no matter how stressful you are, once you get to Nassau in the Bahamas or Key West or wherever warm and there's palm trees and sand, is it really that bad? It's not that bad. You know, you'll get there. You, the problem is you, you'll get there eventually. <laughs> you know, is what they eventually mean. How much, you know, if they're going to delay your, your flight out, you got a week on vacation, they're going to delay your flight out by four days. Um, is that a vacation? <laughs> so, yeah, you... As long as you plan your vacations for a couple of weeks and it's in the south someplace, what's two or three days, right? Absolutely. John, thank you so much for your insight and great tips. I really appreciate it and all the best down the road. Uh, All right. Take care of yourself. Talk, Talk soon. If a March break staycation is in your plans, we have a few last minute ideas. Here's Kevin Frankish. 
So you didn't plan anything for the March break because, hey, the kids will find stuff to do. So it's not even officially the March break, and you're already regretting that decision. Well, Destination Ontario's Lisa Sefton to the rescue. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Kevin. So ha- I'm so happy to chat with you. So here we go. It is March break, and the kids are going to drive you crazy, oh, I'd say Monday around 9.30 a.m. Yes, I'm not look for- looking forward to it. I have a few kids myself. Um, but I am here to tell you that there's a lot to do over March break in Ontario. Um, right now, um, outside, if you're looking for some activities, the ski hills are open for downhill skiing and snowboarding. Um, my favorite activity to do is snow tubing, which is truly a great activity for all ages, as they say, no skill, all thrill. It's all family fun. Um, there's Horseshoe Resort, which is 600 meters long. Um, there's Ontario's highest tube hill, Snow Valley Resort, so not far away. There's also the Rock in Keswick. And it's not all about the hills. Another great family activity for everyone to do is uh, snowshoeing. Cold Creek, just north of Kleinberg, has snowshoe trails and rentals. Hardwood Ski and Bike in Oromodonte has rentals, as well as Horseshoe Nordic Centre in Horseshoe Valley. These are all places you can go and just really enjoy the forests and the trails. Um, speaking of trails, skate trails are growing in popularity and a great way to be outside. Of course, a lot of these are weather permitting, but so many of them are trying to stretch their season through to the end of March break. Uh, there's the Richmond Green Skate Trail next to Tom uh, Graham Arena and Elgin Mills Road. It's a 250-meter loop trail with lights in the evening free and you don't have to register uh, there's also riverwalk commons and new markets refrigerated and open daily and if you want to head north and have some forest experience there's the simcoe county museum in Springwater. there's a trail that goes through the forest uh, there's a mountaintop trading skating trail at um, blue mountain resort with beautiful views of georgian bay and you can even go up to muskoka to the muskoka lakes farm and winery in bala where they've frozen their cranberry marsh so you can skate around that as well oh that would be awesome all right, DestinationOntario.com, and uh, you can get all sorts of information there and maybe even check and see if there's some uh, last-minute bookings you can get as well. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Kevin. Coming up, award season ready. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. We are wrapping up award season with the 95th Annual Academy Awards. Shaliza Backus with the nominees. Hollywood's biggest night is this weekend, and we are getting amped up for the Academy Awards, the creme de la creme for Hollywood. And joining me now to talk about that is Cam Maitland from The Hollywood Suite. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm very excited. We're we're almost there, right? <laughs> Almost. I feel like there have been a million awards shows since then, and I spoke to you a little while ago before the Golden Globes, and a lot of Oscar nominations are similar to the Globes and the SAG Awards. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's been a very interesting year because certain categories seem more locked and dominated than they almost ever have, and not necessarily by the, you know, Oscar bait you would think. Whereas we've also seen a couple categories recently, especially through the uh, Screen Actors Guild Awards, the Directors Guild Awards, and the Producers Guild Awards, just like totally blown up. So there are some very exciting races coming up on Sunday. And Cam, what do you think are some of the biggest snubs at the Oscars this year? 
it's it's kind of a little all over the place depending on what you like is the, the interesting thing this year is a very unusual year because it's a lot of big ensemble movies so mm-hmm. something like women talking that i know a lot of people were stumping for people kind of knew that that would never get any acting awards because it's really an ensemble cast uh and then at the same time you know something like uh, the whale which uh, brendan fraser is kind of one of the dominant acting categories it is a movie that didn't get nominated for Best Picture. So you're kind of seeing slights and snubs here and there. But I think for the most part, a lot of the big movies got some recognition. Whether or not they're going to actually win the awards is a whole other thing. And going off of that, what are the differences between deciding what gets nominated for an Academy Award and, let's say, a Golden Globe? I mean, especially compared to the Golden Globes, it's a totally different group. Uh, The Academy is actually kind of interesting. You tend to associate it with America because a lot of the other countries have big award shows. But uh, the Academy recently, at least, has expanded its roster to include a lot of international filmmakers, a lot of younger people. It's a very big group. Um, So you're not necessarily getting like a pure democratic vote, but I think you are seeing a lot of different choices Uh, when it comes to something like the Golden Globes. That's actually an incredibly small group of, I think, around 50 critics. So uh, this group instead, you have all the people from the industry, uh, something like Best Picture is voted on by just tons of folks from uh, in front of the camera and behind it and a lot of past winners. So that's why I think people still hold the Oscars and the nominations in esteem. Okay, and let's talk about Canadians for a minute. Are there any Canadians who are front runners? I mean, it's a really good year for Canadians. There's about kind of 10 high profile Canadians. I mean, obviously, it's always important to remember that James Cameron uh, grew up here. He's obviously been a Hollywood guy for a long time, but he does still often identify as a Canadian and enjoy his Canadian roots. So I think he's going to really probably sweep a lot of the technical categories with Avatar The Way of Water. Somebody else. Uh, unabashedly Canadian, who I think has a pretty good shot, is uh, Sarah Pauly, especially in the adapted screenplay section. Uh, It's kind of a weak year for adapted screenplays, and even films that are very dominant, like All Quiet on the Western Front, I know in writing groups are not necessarily considered a great adaptation. Whereas Sarah Pauly with Women Talking, she adapted a book that I think a lot of people considered fairly unadaptable. Uh, so I think she has a, a at least a running chance in a category that's kind of weak this year. And then, like I say, the other person to remember, a lot, uh, somebody that a lot of people don't consider uh, a Canadian or remember is Brendan Fraser. Uh, mm-hmm. He is a Canadian guy, and it's pretty much down to him and Austin Butler when it comes to Best Actor. And of course, I have to mention Everything Everywhere All at Once. That film basically swept the SAG Awards. So could that also happen at the Oscars? Yeah, I mean, there's a few categories where it is like statistically almost 100% a lock. Uh, Something like Best Picture, it is unheard of for a film like this to win the Producers Guild, the Directors Guild, and the Screen Actors Guild and not win Best Picture. Uh, The last film to ever do it was Apollo 13, and that was the first year of the Ensemble Awards for the Screen Actors, so it's a little bit of an odd one. And this movie is frankly not Apollo 13, you know? It's a a (laughs) lot bigger emotional movie. It is, in its own way, kind of a blockbuster. But I think it's also important to remember that this is an odd movie that is uh, seemingly very specific It's a very unusual choice. It's indie. It's obviously Asian-led. I think that all of that is, uh, you should feel good. It's fine that it's a lock. It's kind of an amazing thing that it's a lock. 
And I want to go back to your point about Everything Everywhere All at Once being an Asian-led film. Do you think that diversity and representation are improving in Hollywood? I mean, in Hollywood, maybe not. I think the Academy is trying very hard. And I also think that this film doing so well, I think, strikes a, a real positive blow for representation. This is a film that has absolutely connected with wide audiences. And I think that there's something to be said for an odd movie like this. This isn't, you know, Black Panther, which is a big superhero movie. As much as this has fighting and whatever, it is a drama and it's about, you know, tradition and family. And it has this cast made up of actors who either have been around in Hollywood forever, like James Hong or Michelle Yeoh, or actors who are forgotten, like Kehi Kwan. Hollywood loves to learn a lesson and forget about it next year. But I'm hoping that maybe this lesson uh, will stick a little longer. And Cam, before I let you go, what are you most looking forward to at the Academy Awards? Uh, Real niche stuff, I guess. But uh, it's going to be a big year for performances of Best Original Song, which is very exciting. Uh, We're going to get Rihanna again on the stage. But what I am really most excited for is uh, the song Natu Natu from RRR, which is a, a Telugu movie, a big blockbuster, a big film out of India. Didn't get very far, but I think that the director, S.S. Rajmuli, knew that this song was the way in, and we know that the actors are going to perform. It is a tremendous number of singing and dancing. I think it is going to just keep people's mind on India and Indian film into the future, and I think it's just going to blow the doors off the Academy. You know what? That's an interesting point you made because I'm a fan of Indian and Bollywood movies myself. And the 2001 movie Lagan, do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, with, that was probably like the last time a Bollywood movie was on an international stage like this. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting that that, that consideration has kind of come and gone. Uh, but now I think, especially with S.S. Rajmuli and his last few movies, uh, they have just done so well in the United States that you kind of can't ignore India and all the films coming out of there. All right. Cam Maitland from The Hollywood Suite. The Academy Awards air Sunday at 8 p.m. hosted by Jimmy Kimmel. Hopefully no one gets slapped this time. Christina Lavecchia now with a preview of Monday's Juno Awards. The Juno goes to... Canadian music correspondent, publicist, and radio host Eric Alper is here to help me break down what we could expect this year at the 52nd Juno Awards airing this coming Monday, March 13th from Edmonton, Alberta. Hi, Eric. Thank you for joining me on the feed. Thank you so much for having me. I'll tell you what you can expect. You can expect to see me on the red carpet freezing... And so far, it's going to be minus 23 on Monday in Edmonton. Really? So, yes. Wow. Um, but, but I guess I should say, but the music will heat up the weather this weekend at the Junos. For uh, sure. It better, be, it better be, yeah. It's pretty exciting stuff. It is. This year, the weekend leads the pack with six nominations. And I kind of want to go through a couple of the biggest categories of the night. And um, I kind of want to get your take on whether there's any snubs, surprises, and maybe a prediction from you. For sure. Okay, so let's start with Artist of the Year. We have Michael Bublé, Avril Lavigne, Shawn Mendes, Lauren Spencer-Smith, and The Weeknd. Any snubs or surprises? Not really a surprise. I'm I'm never surprised whenever somebody like The Weeknd starts leading the pack with six nominations. I think if anybody, I'm kind of surprised and no knock against her whatsoever that Avril Lavigne comes up with five nominations. So I think, you know, whenever The Weeknd is going to be up for anything during the Junos, I think he has to be that sure bet to win it. He's not only had one of the greatest years anybody has ever seen in Canadian music, 
but I think in the music industry in general, with having his light song over 90 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, he's currently in the top 10 for a song that came out almost six years ago, the uh, duet that he did with uh, Ariana Grande. So he's certainly, you know, one of the world's biggest pop stars. And he's won this uh, category three times in the past. So definitely he's a he's a big contender for that one. So how about album of the year? We have Ali Gaddy, which would be his first Juno Award uh, win for him if he were to take that home. There's Avril Lavigne again, Tate McRae, Nav, and The Weeknd again with Don FM. Any snubs or surprises? No, I think The Weeknd is going to take it, but I love the fact that it's a pretty diverse group of people, especially um, with a couple of hometown artists from Alberta. And also Nav's album was pretty well respected in the U.S., garnering a lot of attention from Rolling Stone and Spin and Pitchfork magazine. So um, that's a pretty diverse list right there. And so another big one is Single of the Year. Again, we have Avril Lavigne, Tate McRae, Shawn Mendes, Preston Pablo featuring Banks and Ranks, and The Weeknd again. Um, yeah, so any snubs or surprises yeah. for that? I'd love to see Tate McRae win one, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, and I hope that she does. Um, she's from Alberta. She made her mark um, pretty much on, on TikTok first, although that she's worked really, really hard to garner that attention first on social media, then moved into the commercial radio world. So I would love to see her, and I think a lot of people who maybe got a little tiny bit tired of voting for the weekend over and over again this year probably put Tate McRae second, and if that happened, then don't be surprised if she wins, because you can actually start winning this award with like 15% of the vote if everybody else is split between everybody else. This is how you remind me of what I really am. This is how you remind me of what I really am. Nickelback will be inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame live at the award show, followed by a performance reflecting on their 20-plus year career in music. Is it about time the band got recognized? Yeah, it's not necessarily that it's long overdue. I think that the Juno team was waiting for them, uh, for the Junos to come back to Alberta. The band is from Hannah, Alberta, which is right in the middle of Calgary and Edmonton. So this makes a perfect sense. They've got a brand new album. They've just announced a worldwide tour again. They've sold over 35 million albums in their career, been loved um, uh, the world over, and certainly carrying the torch for rock music here in Canada and around the world. So I think it's not necessarily long overdue, but I'm, I'm super happy. The guys are in the band are incredibly nice. They're very thoughtful, and uh, they deserve it all. Another big performance will honor the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Last month, the Grammys also did a tribute. What can we expect from the Canadian celebration? Yeah, this is going to be really good. They've got Cardinal Offishal. They've got Javier Mightley. Also, Maestro Fresh West is going to be there. Dream Warriors, who is known for their hit, My Definition of a Boombastic Jazz Style, um, is going to be there. Mishi Me and DJ Mel Boogie 
as well as uh, Toby that is relatively new. This is going to be amazing. I hope that the Junos thought about this before they heard that the Grammys were going to do it. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but it's really, really nice that they decided to put the spotlight on the broadcast portion of it too. It would be one thing for them to just recognize it on the Saturday gala night where a great majority of the awards are given out, but this absolutely definitely needed to be um, on the broadcast night. It's going to be one for the lifetime for sure. Other performers include a Senebi, who is up for Contemporary Indigenous Artist or Group of the Year, and Jesse Reyes, who is up for Contemporary R&B Recording of the Year, as well as fellow nominees Banks and Ranks, together with President Pablo, Rev, and Tate McRae. The award ceremony will be broadcasted and streamed live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Eric, thank you for helping me provide a preview of Canada's biggest night in music to our listeners. Uh, happy to do it. Thanks, Eric. Thank you so much. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.